Hello, hello. This is it. The birth of England. It's taken a while, hasn't it? It's been a, a stop, start, stop, start process ever since the first Germanic settlers arrived in uh, the 400s, just after the Romans had left their province of Britannia. It's taken nearly 400 years to get to this point in English history. And as I say, stop, start, stop, start. We've had, uh, you know, the Britons fought back under people like Cadwathlan and uh, Urien of Reged and King Arthur or whoever he was. And we've had, uh, we've had Vikings on the prowl around Britain as well with a great heathen army. And, and every time it looked like there was going to be an England formed, it all went wrong. And many people would say that, of course, it was Alfred the Great who was the founder of, of England. But that's wrong. I mean, despite styling himself King of the English, this was more of an aspiration than a political reality. You know, when Alfred died, as many Englishmen and women lived under Danish or Viking rule as they did living under, lived under Alfred's. The old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, you know, Northumbria, East Anglia, half of Mercia were outside of his control. And it was left to his son, Edward the Elder, and indeed his daughter, Ethelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, to pursue his dream. And pursue it they did. By the end of Edward's 25-year reign, all of East Anglia and Eastern Mercia had been successfully wrested back from Danish control. And indeed, when his sister had died a few years previously, Edward had marched his army into Western, into Western Mercia and annexed the Midlands into his realm. All of England, south of the, the Mersey and the Humber, were under his control. And when he died in 924, there was a potential succession crisis in Wessex, or should we call it Anglo-Saxon England. Um, you see, Edward had been married three times, and, it, and in Anglo-Saxon custom, it was not necessarily the eldest son of the first wife who inherited the throne. And because inheritance was not clear-cut, this gave, well, all the other potential members of the royal family uh, a, a claim, to the, claim to the crown as well. His son from his first marriage was a man called Athelstan. However, when Edward remarried, and as I say, in fact, he, he married three times in total, <laughs> Athelstan was a potential threat to wife number two, his own children, and their chance to grab the throne. So he was packed off, and we don't know whether it was like a wicked stepmother sending him off, or whether this was Edward the Elder actually trying to protect his eldest son. But he was packed off to live with Auntie Ethelflaed in Mercia. So Athelstan was brought up not in the powerful court of Wessex in Winchester, but in the, the regional court in Tamworth, in Mercia. This put him at a, a disadvantage compared to his half-brothers down in, in Wessex. Furthermore, there were many who claimed that Edward had never actually married Athelstan's mother in the first place. In other words, he was illegitimate. Uh, still some debate around that in, in historic circles. But on the other hand, Edward always acknowledged him as his son. And Athelstan did have a power base. He didn't have Winchester and Wessex, but he was seen by the nobles of Mercia as their man. And when Edward died, they had no hesitation on proclaiming, proclaiming their support for Athelstan as the king of the Anglo-Saxons. The problem was that the nobles of Wessex had another plan. They proclaimed their support for Aethweird, his half-brother from wife number two, and a dynastic civil war loomed, pitting Old Mercia against Wessex, that historic animosity in, in Anglo-Saxon England. And then, just 16 days after Edward the Elder's death, Aethweird passed away too. Which was incredibly good luck for Athelstan, 
Or maybe Athelstan made his own luck. No one knows. So despite the route to the throne now being unchallenged, it seems that he still faced opposition in Winchester. Uh, it was over a year before he felt secure enough to travel to Winchester to be the Wessex capital to be crowned. And his Athelstan's animosity towards Winchester continued for the rest of his life, and we'll come back to that later. Athelstan never married. No one knows why. I mean, it could have been sexual preference, although there's no evidence for that. It could have been some form of religious celibacy, for which he was praised in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Or maybe it was a way of keeping his half-brothers under control. Thanks to Edward, Athelstan was master of all of England, south of the Mersey and Humber. But he, still faced, he was still faced with a Viking or Norse kingdom of Jorvik, modern-day York, which controlled well, the north of what is now effectively England. Fundamentally, it controlled Yorkshire. Meanwhile, up to the west of the Pennines, Lancashire was a bit of a no-man's land, and to the north of the Tyne, there was a, a rump of the old kingdom of Northumbria, which had been taken out by the Vikings. Uh, and it was governed by a local English earl, but on a very short leash from Viking Jorvik. And beyond them, further north, were the kingdoms of the Picts, the Irish settler kingdom of Dalriada, around modern-day River Clyde, and the Brethonic, or ancient British kingdom, of Strathclyde. To Athelstan's west were a series of British kingdoms in what is now Wales. And also, let's not forget, there were Britons controlling Cornwall and Devon in the southwest of England. The most serious threat lay in Jorvik. Not only were the Vikings formidable warriors in their own right, but Scandinavians had followed their warriors and settled not just in Yorkshire, but throughout the area of the five boroughs in the East Midlands of England. And these settlers might be under Athelstan's rule, but there was no doubt where their sympathies really lay. You know, if the Norse were to return, they would be welcomed by many of Athelstan's subjects, especially in the East. So Athelstan decided to control the threat posed by Jorvik by marrying his sister to their king, Citric. It might not have given Athelstan control over the North, but at least it kept his northern frontier secure. Just three years later, Citric died, and in the ensuing power vacuum in Jorvik, Athelstan marched his army into the Viking kingdom and seized control. He also used this opportunity of effectively no Viking opposition to move into the no man's land of Lancashire. And he also banished the Britons, or the Cornish, from Exeter in modern day Devon. And he established a new boundary with them at the River Tamar, which is still the boundary of the county of Cornwall to this day. For the first time, one Anglo-Saxon king effectively ruled all of modern day England, excluding Cornwall and Athelstan exchanged his original title of King of the Anglo-Saxons and adopted a new title, King of the English. But his ambitions went further. Shortly afterwards, he held a meeting at Penrith, which is now in Cumbria, but at the time was strategically placed at the edge of his northern, uh, his northern border. And there, King Constantine of Scotland, uh, the King of the Brythonic Strathclyde, the King of Defid in southwest Wales, and the Anglian Earl of Northumbria all submitted to him. Now, just to be clear, submission by one king to another at this time did not mean that Athelstan ruled their kingdoms. It just meant that their kings paid homage to Athelstan, King of the English. He was sort of High King of Britain. And indeed, Athelstan started to style himself in charters and coins as King of the whole of Britain. 
The British kingdoms, however, were not happy with this new situation and this English king throwing his weight around. And finally, in 937, the Scots and the Strathclyde Britons formed an alliance with the Norse king of Dublin, a man called Olaf uh, Guthrithson, and they invaded England in a massive army. Project England, celebrating just its 10th birthday, was in dire peril once again. Chroniclers from the time are not clear as to where the invasion took place, or if indeed it was several invasions. You know, they named potential fleets landing in the Humber, uh, on the banks of the Mersey over on the west, and indeed invading overland uh, from the north. What they all agree upon is that King Athelstan gathered his army, his English army, and marched north, and at a place called uh, Brunenburg, the two vast armies met. And the chroniclers all agree that Athelstan won a stunning victory. Unfortunately, for such a pivotal battle in the, the birth of England, none of them actually identify where the battle was fought. Some historians say it was in Yorkshire, whilst others opt for Bromborough on the, the Wirral Peninsula near, near, near Chester. Athelstan died two years later. But it's Athelstan, not Alfred, who unified the country that we now call England. It was Athelstan who secured this new country with his victory at Brunnenburg, a crucial battle that is so important that no one knows where the hell it was actually fought. And it was Athelstan who was the first acknowledged as the first king of the English. I mentioned earlier that Athelstan never really forgave Winchester for their opposition early in his reign, and symbolically he ordered that his body not be buried in Winchester, where Alfred and his father King Edward lay, but buried far away at Malmesbury Abbey instead. And I also mentioned that Athelstan never married. As I say, it could have been moral or religious, uh, religious, but based upon the opposition down there in Wessex, it could well have been a way to keep his half-brothers in check. Yet basically, you know, if, you, if, if they behaved, they knew they would have a chance of inheriting the throne because he had no children. And what's interesting is that apart from the proclamations for Aethweard, uh, when King Edward the Elder died, none of his half-brothers ever attempted to seize uh, Athelstan's throne in, the in his 15-year reign. And upon his death in 939, the throne did indeed pass to, well, actually two of these half-brothers, uh, Edmund and then Edred. We'll pass over these reigns really quickly because mainly for the sake of time, okay, but suffice to say that when Edmund, uh, the elder of the, those two uh, half-brothers, came to the throne, the Norse of Jorvik once more saw their opportunity. Olaf uh, Guthrison from Dublin, remember him from the Battle of Brunnenberg only two years earlier? Well, he landed in Yorkshire and re-established the Norse kingdom of Jorvik. In fact, he went a step further. He, re he basically reasserted control over the five boroughs in the East Midlands as well. So basically all the work that Edward the Elder and Athelstan had achieved had just been rolled back in the space of a year. Edmund spent most of his reign attempting to, to roll back this latest Scandinavian adventure. And it wasn't until 954, 15 years later, that he was actually able to defeat Eric Bloodaxe and re-establish English, English control over Jorvik. God, the Vikings had some cracking names, didn't they? Eh? Upon Edmund's death, the throne passed to his, uh, his younger brother, Edred rather than any of his sons. Uh, and then upon Edred's death, the throne reverted to his nephews or Edmund's sons. Anglo-Saxon inheritance is nothing if not confusing. Okay, so that's why I'm just racing over this bit. The, the first of those sons ruled for just four years. 
before his brother Edgar came to the throne. Edgar was England's fourth king in just 13 years. This is like a premiership, uh, premiership football managers, isn't it? <laughs> in many respects, Edgar's reign was actually quite uneventful. However, what's really interesting, he presided over a 16-year period of peace, stability and prosperity. In fact, he became known as Edgar the Peaceful or the Edgar the Peaceable. On Whit Sunday, 973, he was crowned at Bath by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dunstan, who was later elevated to become Saint Dunstan. And of course, Edgar had already been king for 14 years, so he didn't need to be crowned. But this, this coronation uh, was not an inauguration, it was a celebration of his regal power. Dunstan himself arranged the coronation ceremony and he drew heavily upon the anointment of King David by the high priests in the Old Testament. And this, this coronation ceremony turned kingship from merely, you know, the right of succession or a force of arms in Anglo-Saxon England into a divine religious ceremony. In fact, the service and the prayers and the oaths that were devised by Dunstan for this coronation are still the cornerstones of England's coronation services to this day, including Queen Elizabeth II's. So next time you watch some old uh, footage of the Queen's coronation, or indeed when we get to our next coronation, just remember you're witnessing a ceremony, much of which dates back a thousand years in English history. Amazing. Now Edgar was another one of these kings of England who had three wives, the second of whom he is accused of, of abducting from a nunnery before dumping her back there two years later, complete with baby daughter. However, he did have sons from wife number one, Edward, who was about 12 years old, and also from wife number three, a boy called Athelred, who was about three years younger than his half-brother. And when Edgar died peacefully, appropriately enough, in 975, it was that eldest son from wife number one who inherited the throne as King Edward. Unfortunately, wife number three wasn't going to have that. And in true pantomime evil stepmother fashion, she intrigued against uh, the new king. And just three years later, Edward was assassinated near Corfe Castle in Dorset by a group of nobles uh, from the camp supporting his half-brother and the Dowager Queen. It's one of those strange quirks of history that comparatively few people have heard of Athelstan, first king of England. Yet many of us have heard of his great nephew, Athelred, although most of us will know him by his nickname, Athelred the Unready. Yet this is a modern, well, Victorian nickname which shows a deviation on the name the Anglo-Saxons gave him, Athelred Unread, or Athelred the Unread. The name Ethelred in Anglo-Saxon basically meant noble wise, wise noble. So his Anglo-Saxon nickname actually was a play on words and it was something like uh, noble wise the unwise or noble counsel the poorly counselled. Clever pun. Anglo-Saxon comedy nights must have been a bit of fun, hey? But actually it was this poor counsel from his clique of supporters who were more interested, quite frankly, in making money for themselves at the, expense, at the expense of defending the kingdom that was to define his reign and give him that name of Ethelred the Unread, Ethelred the Unready. And that lack of wise counsel was an Achilles heel, just because just as he became king as an early teenager, after a 30-year absence, our old friends from Scandinavia were back, the Vikings. 
The Viking raids uh, came to a head in the 990s, about 10 years into his reign, when a huge fleet landed in Essex. And there they met the third or militia of Essex under their Earl, uh, Berthtoth. The ensuing battle at Malden became a famous Anglo-Saxon poem. Unfortunately, it wasn't a victory poem. The Vikings won. And it was at this stage that Athelred made a decision or was given advice, this wise or unwise counsel. It was a decision that would come back to haunt him. Because he decided he could not fight if they'd already, the Danes, the Vikings had already defeated the, the third of, es of Essex, who could, who could he actually use to fight them? So he paid them 10,000 pieces of silver to clear off. And they did. This, this Danegeld, as it was called, was not a new thing. Alfred the Great had paid Danegeld to buy peace and time in the past. But Alfred had used that time to reinforce his burrs, his fortified towns. Athelred, based upon the poor counsel of his clique, didn't do that. So when the next Viking raiders turned up, demanding Danegeld, he was in no better military position than he was after the Battle of Maldon. And so he was forced to pay again. And to the Danes, or the Vikings, England under Athelred was, was just like this gift that kept giving. England, and more importantly Athelred, were being bled dry by the Danegelds. And yet Athelred didn't have the means to actually take them on and defeat them in battle. So he decided on a different tact, again with poor advice from his, his clique of counsellors. In 1002, he ordered that all Danes in England should be murdered on St Bryce's Day. This massacre certainly did take place, as archaeological exca excavations have proved, but it wasn't the wholesale massacre of an enemy fifth column that it was intended. Many Danes were able to get away, and some areas of the country, the Danish population outnumbered the local English population, so it, it wasn't going to happen. But unfortunately, one of the Danes who was massacred was the sister of the King of Denmark himself, Swain Forkbeard. And the following year, Swain Fortbeard arrived in England with a huge army seeking revenge. He occupied East Anglia and then his army ravaged their way through the land for nearly two years before going home. Two years later, Swain was back. This time Athelred did what he did best. He paid him a Danegeld. Then in 1012, another Danegeld was paid to an invading army. 48,000 pieces of silver, five times the amount that paid after the Battle of Maldon. I mean, in fairness to Athelred, it wasn't, it wasn't that he didn't try to defend his kingdom. The problem is that all this I'm alright Jack pull the ladder up behaviour, which came from the royal clique with Ethelred at the top of it, permeated through the rest of English society. A really good example was in 1007. He builds a fleet to counter the Viking raids. Only for part of that fleet, under a minor nobleman from Sussex called Wolfnoth, uh, decided to go AWOL and they actually started pirating along the coast of Europe instead of fighting the Vikings. They effectively became Vikings. And we'll come back to Wolfnoff in a while. By 1013, Swain Fortbeard had decided it was time to seize the goose that actually laid the golden eggs. He landed in England, this time intent on seizing the throne itself. And in just over a year, he swept all before him. Athelred had to flee for safety to his, wife's, uh, his second wife's homeland, Normandy, with their two sons. And on Christmas Day 1014, the nobles of England proclaimed Swain Forkbeard as King of England. But he didn't know that. He was never crowned and he actually died just six weeks later in Gainsborough. Some say he fell from his horse. Whilst a later legend claimed that Saint Edmund the Martyr, who was the, the King of East Anglia, 
who was killed by the great heathen army 50 years beforehand, had come back from the dead and killed him in his sleep. Either way, the Danish invasion was in complete disarray. Swain's young son, Knut, couldn't, didn't have the authority uh, of his father over his Danish army and certainly not over the English nobles. And the English nobles called back the only alternative. Ready or not, Ethelred the Unready was back on the throne of England. But not for long. Just two years later, Canute landed to reclaim what he saw as his throne, and by now he had the full backing of the Danish warriors. Athelred finally died in April 1016. The people of London proclaimed and crowned the son of his first marriage, Edmund, as king, and he was a pretty good choice because he was the opposite of his father. He was an old-school Anglo-Saxon warrior like Raidwold or Pender, and his military prowess actually earned him a nickname, Ironside. The rest of the English Witton, which was the, the council of senior nobles and clergy, meeting in Winchester, however, declared for Canute. So now we had a kingdom divided and we had two young warriors fighting for the throne of England. Canute of Denmark, the man who incidentally couldn't hold back the sea. That's the one we're talking about, King Canute. Canute of Denmark versus Edmund Ironside. The two of them actually fought five battles through the summer of 1016, with Canute eventually winning the final battle at Assenden. Uh, coming away from that battle, the two warriors agreed to divide the kingdom. Edmund taking Wessex and London, and Canute ruling the rest. With winter approaching, King Edmund Ironside returned to London and died. Some lurid accounts suggest that he was actually assassinated while sitting on the toilet with a, with a knife shoved up from down below. Someone had been in the privy. Uh, whilst others suggest he died of wounds sustained in the summer battles. Either of which are possible. Anyway, now the Witton now overwhelmingly elected Canute as King of England, in preference to Edmund's two infant sons. Canute sent those two princes to Sweden, where he hoped they might quietly be disposed of. However, they actually ended up in the Hungarian court. Uh, and one of them, Edward the Exile, and his son, uh, a boy called Edmund Aethling, would have a role to play at the very end of the Anglo-Saxon story in 1066. Meanwhile, Canute wasted no time in cementing his hold on England by marrying Ethelred's widow, Emma of Normandy. And she packed her two sons from Ethelred off to her relatives, the Dukes of Normandy. Get them out of the way. And then she proceeded to give Canute a son of their own, a, man called, a boy called Hatha Canute. Canute presided over a North Sea empire comprising of, of England, Denmark, Norway, parts of Sweden for the next 19 years. It's, it's interesting to, to note just how North Sea Scandinavian England's orbit was at this time compared to the French orbit that would dominate the Middle Ages. During his reign, Canute organised England into four massive administrative earldoms which could be ruled by an earl on his behalf. Two of them, uh, Northumbria and East Anglia, were ruled by trusted Danes. The other two, however, he entrusted to up-and-coming Englishmen. Leofric, husband of Lady Godiva, her wearing no clothes riding around Coventry, uh, he became the Earl of Mercia. And do you remember Wolfnoth, um, Athelred's naval captain turned pirate? Well, it seems that sometimes crime and, uh, and uh, disloyalty do pay, because Wolfnoth's son was elevated to the earldom of Wessex. And his name was Godwin. And Godwin had a son, Harold. Harold Godwinson. 
but more of him when we talk about 1066. When Canute died in 1035 after a 19-year reign, the, three, the throne stayed Danish, first with Harold Harefoot, his son from his first marriage to an English woman, and then to his son from Emma of Normandy, Harthur Canute, who was crowned uh, King of England. But all good things come to an end. And in 1042, after 26 years, the Danish party in England came to an end. And it literally came to an end at a party. Harthur Canute attended a wedding party in Lambeth, now South London. And well, he was partying like it was 1042. And as he rose to make a speech at this wedding party, he had a stroke which probably put a bit of a kibosh on the wedding party, and it certainly put a bit of a kibosh on the Danish rule of England. And finally, the crown reverted back to the House of Wessex. But which part of the House of Wessex and to who? Well, not poor old Edward the Exile, Ethelred's grandson through Edmund Ironside, because he was stuck over in Hungary. The throne passed to Ethelred's son from his second marriage to Emma of Normandy. Uh, also just confusingly called Edward. He'd spent most of his life in exile in Normandy. In many respects, he was more Norman than he was English. And the Normans could see an opportunity to gain riches in England with their new, uh, with their new friend, Edward the Confessor. Pious, a bachelor, and the last of the House of Wessex to sit on the throne of England. Because now, all roads were leading towards 1066.